Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, it's a privilege to be together. It's a privilege to sing and to pray, to be in your presence. It's a, pres- it's a privilege now to open your word together. And it is a privilege to have your Holy Spirit in us and among us to assist us as we do so. And we pray that based upon the blood of Christ shed for us and our status as adopted children with you, that you would continue to be kind with us and help us to understand your word. Help us to love it, Lord. Help us to accept the things that you have laid in front of us this morning. Help us to love Jesus more as a result of what we find in the word. Help us to desire to walk in faithfulness. We pray that this morning would would be another step in each one of our lives toward Christ-likeness. And by that, that you would grant us to continue walking ever more faithfully in a manner that accords with your gospel. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians Chapter 3, we're getting very close now to the end of the letter, and our focus this morning will be verses 6 through 15, 6 through 15, so as you're finding your place there, let us stand, I'll ask you to follow along as I read these verses, 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You may be be seated. One of the great TV shows of the late 80s, early 90s, I think of it as a precursor to the to the reality show of today's was 
Rescue 911, hosted and narrated by the great Bill Shatner. Anybody remember this show? Yeah, Bill Shatner has one speed, and that is like over-the-top dramatic. I loved that show. They, they, would play, they would play the actual 911 calls and then reenact the, the first responders reacting to those calls. And they usually start out with, with something a little light, you know, like an anaphylactic shock or, or a heart attack, and move on to more serious things. You could always expect that the last, the last call after the, the final commercial break would be something really juicy. You know, you'd have a, a shotgun wound or, or maybe a house on fire with people inside. But it, there were, it was always a happy ending. And for, for a boy growing up in the Bible Belt of suburban West Texas, this was tremendously exciting. I think of this second letter to the Thessalonians as something like an episode of Rescue 911. You have multiple threats being addressed all at one time. You have this one church in Thessalonica that has all of these threats coming to them all at the same time, and Paul is, is giving them, he's responding to all of them in the same letter. So if you think back to chapter 1, to this threat of persecution, Paul responds with encouragement to the threat of deceptive doctrine. In chapter 2, he responds with correction. And like like Bill Shatner would do, Paul saves the the greatest threat for last. It's not that persecution and deception are no big deal, but those external threats are not the biggest threat to the church. They weren't the biggest threat to the church in Thessalonica, they're not the biggest threat to the church throughout history. The biggest threat to the church has always been internal. It's terribly dangerous. We get a sense of how dangerous it is by the relative urgency with which Paul addresses this third threat. And he doesn't develop an argument first like he does with the first two. He goes right to the chase. In the rest of the passage, he's going to back up a little bit and and expound on the situation, but he gets right to the bottom line here. The church must separate from habitually ungodly professors. That is the big, great threat to the church in Thessalonica throughout the church's history. The church must separate from habitually ungodly Professors, Look with me again at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So there are people walking in idleness. And he'll explain later exactly what that means, but the word walking in indicates that they're, they're doing this as a lifestyle. This is not an episodic thing where they're being a little lazy here and there, but they're making a lifestyle of ungodliness. And the problem with that is, he indicates in that, that second phrase that comes right after it, that it's not in accord with the tradition that they've received. Now Paul has used that word tradition back in chapter 2, and if you remember that message, you'll remember that what he has in mind there is the gospel. These people are living in a manner that is not consistent with the gospel. And to that situation, he prescribes this. Stay away from them. The implication being, this is extremely dangerous to you. The gospel teaches that sin is tremendously dangerous. It, it separates us from God. It, it, it brings us under His righteous condemnation. 
in a sense, sin robs us of God. And, and for that reason, sin is the most harmful thing in existence. The gospel begins there. And the gospel continues by teaching us that God is so compassionate, He's so loving, that He moved to save us from sin. And He did that by sending His own Son to do a couple of things. Jesus saved us by demonstrating His own perfect righteousness. He did that by living a perfect life in obedience to God's law. Second thing that Jesus did to save us from sin is that He took our sin and guilt upon Himself and suffered for it on the cross. After dying on the cross, three days later, God raised the Son from the dead so that everyone would know that Jesus was victorious over sin and death. The Gospel further teaches that Jesus is such a complete Savior that for all those who repent and trust in Him, He not only saves them from sin's penalty, but He also saves them from sin's power. And He progressively transforms them into His own likeness in their character and conduct. So the Gospel teaches us that Jesus saves and sanctifies. Jesus redeems and transforms. So if, if that Gospel is true, then those who turn to Christ, they should live differently than they did before they turned to Christ. And to claim to know Jesus, but to continue to live in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, that is a threat to the church for at least a couple of reasons. First of all, it contradicts the message of the Gospel because it indicates that Jesus doesn't really transform people's lives. And second, it creates an incubator for sin within the church so that this great danger can spread and potentially harm the whole body. And so Paul's urgency here is understandable. And, and we, we can see why then he begins with the words that he does. We command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, we're coming to you with the authority of Jesus Himself with this command. Stay away from these people who are engaging in this lifestyle of gospel-denying sin. Stay away from them. This is serious. Habitual ungodliness is a threat to the church. And so the church must separate itself from those who are willfully entrenched in it. Now, Paul has, as in that very first verse, he's, he has administered what we might think of as an emergency life-saving measure, and now he's going to step back and, and explain a little bit more what he's talking about, okay? And the first thing that he shows is that we are called very clearly to live in ways that accord with the gospel, we're called to live in ways that accord with the gospel. So look with me again, beginning at verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, it was not because we did not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. Now, when Jesus, just before Jesus was ascended to heaven, just after He was raised from the dead, according to Matthew 28, He gave us one final great instruction to guide us in our lives as disciples. 
And that great instruction was to make disciples. We as disciples are called to make disciples. And we make disciples by doing a couple of things. First of all, we share the gospel with spiritually dead sinners so that by His power they are regenerated into living saints by faith. We then continue to minister the gospel to those living saints so as to train them to live as Jesus lived. In other words, we first show them the way to life in Christ, and then we show them the way to growth in Christ's likeness. In verses 7-9, through we see that that second part has been done very clearly for the Thessalonians. Christ's likeness has been modeled for the church there by the apostles. And he gives a very specific example here. He says, hey, look, we, we were not idle when we were among you. We worked very hard. We worked hard night and day so that we wouldn't be freeloading on any of you. What we ate, we paid for. Even though we have the right as apostles to expect you to feed us for, for the blessing that we're giving to you, ministering to you, we didn't do that because we wanted to give you an example to follow. You know how you're supposed to be following our example. We should, we should be reminded then of that theme that we saw in 1 Thessalonians, that theme of imitating imitators of Christ. Do you remember that? We are imitators of imitators of Jesus. Christian life is largely one of imitating those who are imitating Jesus. That's essentially what discipleship is. Those who are a little bit further down the road toward Christ-likeness, they set an example for those who are coming behind them. We imitate those who are imitating Jesus. So the apostles, they, they set this very specific example of godliness, working hard, not mooching off of others. Now that's just one example of many examples that they set for, for the people in Thessalonica. But it is one that they set. They also gave explicit commands regarding, regarding this very thing. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So the church wasn't left in the dark as to whether or not they were supposed to follow the apostles' example. He told them very, very clearly. And we find that kind of moral, straightforward instruction throughout the Bible. We aren't left in the dark. The Bible that, that, that many of us are holding, is, you may have an electric form on, on your phone. It's, it, it's right there in black and white. This is what it means to, to walk faithfully as Jesus walked. And when we do that, when we walk as Jesus walked, we're living in a way that accords with the gospel. We're showing that the gospel is true because, again, the gospel says that Jesus not only saves, but He also sanctifies. He not, he not only removes the guilt of sin, but He also makes us like Himself. And so, as, as, a, as a sign to the world that, yes, the gospel is true, we are called to walk as Jesus walked. And that leads then to the the major point of this passage, which will require the bulk of our time this morning. And here it is. When professing believers live in ways that do not accord with the gospel, it must be addressed. When professing believers live in ways that do not accord with the gospel, it must be addressed. If you're you're taking notes, you you might... write down a few more things we could break the, this last point into several subpoints and the first of those is that the situation must be brought to light 
situation must be brought to light. We see Paul doing that in verse 11 here. In verse 11 he writes, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And again with that word walk, he's indicating this is a lifestyle. It's not episodic, but they're, they're just living like they did before, before they knew Christ. And he announces this in a very public way. Calling, calling it out for, for, for everybody to, to note it. There's, there's people there not following the example of the, the apostles and not obeying the command of the apostles pertaining to work and not freeloading. And it's not that these folks can't work. It's not that, they're, that, that they don't have the, the physical ability. They, they've got plenty of energy. It's just that they're expending it, getting into other people's business. That's what he means by your busy bodies. Now, Paul confronts this issue in a way that we might not have, we might not have expected. We might wonder why, why didn't Paul follow Matthew 18? Those of you who are familiar with Matthew 18, you know that, that Matthew 18 prescribes what we might characterize as escalating levels of confrontation. So, first you go to that offender in private, and if if he or she doesn't repent, then you take two or three others with you and, and you confront again. And, and then if the person still doesn't repent, then you tell it to the church. Then you tell it to the church. And if the offender still doesn't repent, then you put the offender out of the church. So we might have expected, based upon Matthew 18, for Paul to begin addressing this issue in Thessalonica by writing individual letters to each of these people. And then if they didn't repent, he might ratchet up a little, only go into a public forum like this after several calls to repentance. But he didn't do that. He, he went straight to this public forum. Why would he do that? Well, Matthew 18 assumes a few things. It assumes that you have a single offender who is a single offender in a situation that is not public. And when, when those circumstances both of those circumstances are not present. That is, when there are multiple offenders or one offender and the situation is public, then the threat of that sin in the congregation is greatly increased. Some of us might be inclined to think that those escalating confrontations in Matthew 18, we might think, well, the whole intention there is to, to protect the privacy of of the, of the offender, but given other passages in the New Testament, we would have to say that likely is not a concern at all of, of the writers of the New Testament. Rather, it is more likely that those private confrontations of Matthew 18 are intended to protect the rest of the church. So if, you, if you're taking notes, write down Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1. So there Paul indicates how dangerous sin is even when you're trying to help somebody with theirs. There he writes, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Even, even when you enter a situation with the best of intentions, trying to help somebody overcome their sin, that sin is dangerous to you. And you must be very careful. We've, we've already this morning considered that concept of imitators of imitators, we were designed for imitation. We have imitation written on our hearts. We're programmed for it. 
And we see at the very beginning of the Bible this kind of malfunctioning in us. In, in Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve deciding they're going to imitate the serpent rather than God. And that's why we all do that very naturally. We imitate, imitate everything ungodly except God. And, and even as redeemed believers, even as redeemed believers, in the absence of focused intention, our default is to imitate the ungodliness of the world. If you've been a believer for long, you know that's the truth. You know that's the truth. If, if, you, just, if, you, if you turn on the autopilot of your mind, if you turn on the autopilot of your heart, if you just let yourself sit in the inner tube and float on the lazy river of your heart's natural inclinations, where do you tend to go? Not toward godliness, but rather towards ungodliness. And the enemy seeks to use our propensity for imitation against us within the church. That's what makes unrepentant sin so dangerous. It, it, it doesn't take much for, for the sinful heart to find solace and justification for our own sinful inclinations in the sinful actions of others. And the enemy has a jillion ways of, of taking advantage of that situation. You know, we, we may look at, some, at somebody engaged in something and say, well, so-and-so is, is doing, doing this thing. I wonder what that must be like. And, and the daydreams begin, and before long, you've done the same thing, if, if only in your heart. Or, so, so-and-so is engaged in that big sin. My struggle is, is something far less serious by comparison. It's not, not such a big deal. Maybe I shouldn't be so concerned with my own issue. And so I, I pull back or, or I scale back the intensity with which I'm trying to fight that sin in my life because their sin is much bigger. And then that thing in my life grows in a way that it might not have had I not had that thing in my view. There's, there's a million ways that the enemy can use this. But keeping the circle of confrontation small in Matthew 18, it isn't about protecting the privacy of, of the, the offender. It's about protecting the purity of the church. And, and you don't widen the circle of, the, of, of confrontation to the whole church until it's absolutely necessary. And then it's right before excommunication. And, and that, whole, that whole thing, that, that, that idea that keeping the circle tight for the purity of the church, that explains 1 Corinthians 5. You might write down 1 Corinthians 5 and read that whole chapter in your own time this afternoon. 1 Corinthians 5, there's a case of sin. Everybody already knew about it, and it's only one sinner. Everybody already knows about it. There's only one sinner. It's a case of gross sexual immorality. Paul did not send a private letter to that guy. Rather, he rebuked the church for not doing anything. There's no concern whatsoever for that man's privacy, but rather the whole concern of the chapter is for the offender's soul and the purity of the church and to preserve both. He says, get that guy out of there. Get that guy out of the church. Paul compares the sin of that one person in 1 Corinthians 5 to leaven. He says, don't you know that a little leaven, little leaven, leaven's the whole lump. Rebellious attitudes and actions, they spread. That's what, that's what leaven does. And so Paul's concern there in, in Corinth is that people are going to see that man and think, well, he's, he's having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. I mean, that's, that's, that's a perversion that, that even unbelievers think is out of bounds. And nobody's saying anything to him about it. 
If, if that's not off limits, then what is? I've got some longings I'd like to satisfy. And you, you can see how then the sinful heart then takes that man's sin and uses it as permission to engage in whatever they might want to do. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Well, here in Thessalonica, the situation is far more serious even than that because it's not one person. There's a whole group of people engaging in open rebellion. See, the leaven has already spread. There there isn't one person granting implicit permission for ungodliness to those around him. There's a whole group. So then people would be thinking, wow, look at all of these folks around me not earning a living at all, but, but depending upon others to feed them. I don't like working either. I'm going to quit my job. It has to be okay because they're all doing it and no one is saying anything to them about it. And at that point, you're on the verge of establishing a culture of that kind of ungodliness. It has to be called out. And that's the reason for the urgency. That's why he begins with, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, stay away from these people. That's why he concludes 1 Corinthians 5 with these words, purge the evil person from among you. Get this away from the church. Now these these two occasions of public confrontation, this one here in 2 Corinthians 3 and the one in 1 Corinthians 5, these aren't even anomalies in the New Testament. These aren't just a couple of occasions where Paul kind kind of lost himself a little bit. We could give numerous examples. The book of 1 Corinthians could be thought of as a case study in public confrontation. Multiple situations in the New Testament where there's sin going on, everybody sees it, nothing's doing anything about it, and in those situations, you do not start with a Matthew 18 private con- confrontation of any one of those folks because by the time you get to step three or four with any one of them, you have allowed the creation of a culture of ungodliness. And it's too dangerous. You do not do that, you address it publicly. Now consider how instructive it is that the Holy Spirit would choose this issue as an example for us. Such a seemingly innocuous thing, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about laziness here. Just laziness. You think about the things that you may have heard confronted in the church before. I mean, we may set that bar really high, really high, like adultery and maybe nothing else, you know? And there are people who have that view that, that... it's got to be a really high, high bar. And I'm, I'm not demeaning the people who hold to that view. I, I love, there's a number of people that I know who hold that view. I love them and, and respect them very well. But, but, but laziness? I mean, would any of us, would any of us consider putting somebody out of the church for merely being willfully unemployed? Well, We have our Bibles open to a passage it's telling us to. Especially in cases where such ungodliness is open and widespread. In fact, the more widespread and open the sin is, the lower the bar should be. It, it is dangerous and it must be addressed. So, so that's, the first, that's the first step. The situation, it has to be brought to light. Secondly, we see that the offenders must be called to obey. Offenders must be called to obey, and that's what Paul does in verse 12. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So the word translated encourage there 
It's got a range of meaning, and encourage is a little too soft for this context, and that's why many other translations use the word urge. We, we command and urge you, do your work quietly and literally eat your own bread. Earn your own living is, is literally eat your own bread. In, in other words, don't be a freeloader on the rest of the congregation. Don't be a burden on other people in the church. Work hard, be responsible, and so live in accordance with the Gospel. Don't live like unsaved people. And there should be a, a sense of, of loving urgency which, which we pick up in the final verses of, of the passage. This is a warning to a brother or sister. Look, this situation is serious. It's harmful to you. It's harmful to the church. Please turn and obey. Offenders must be called to obey. The final step we see is that the rest must be instructed to act. The rest must be instructed to act. And that's what Paul does in the final three verses, verses 13 through 15. He writes in 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So first of all, he writes, do not grow weary in doing good or, or don't lose heart in doing good. And he's speaking specifically of the good that is the focus of this, this whole section. That is, it, the, the good of taking needed measures against unrepentant sin. Verse 14 confirms that. Verse 14 tells us that the good work that he's talking about is, if they don't obey, you take very difficult action. And we'll get to that in a second. But I'd like to consider, first of all, why he encourages them not to grow weary or lose heart in this, and why he calls this good work. First, he encourages them not to grow weary in this good work because it's wearisome. It's a wearisome task. It's not easy in any way. It is emotionally and spiritually taxing to address sin in people that you love in the church. And you know this if you have ever sought to lovingly confront someone. Often, at least initially, people don't respond well. What, 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 is the, what, is, what is the typical reaction of the human heart to correction? Especially a heart that's already entrenched in, entrenched in a rebellious attitude or action. What's, what's the natural reaction? Defensiveness. And, and that's because when we're in sin, we've already been working hard to defend ourselves against our consciences. Our consciences have already been confronting us. We've been pushing back against them. So when somebody else confronts us, it's the knee-jerk thing to push back against them too. And there's some somewhat predictable defense mechanisms that we resort to in, in those situations. When confronted, we tend to find fault with how we've been confronted rather than considering the content of the confrontation. In other words, we, we may try to turn the tables on this person confronting us. We may make it all about them and not about our sin. We may say to the con confronter something like, you know, you're, you're not really handling this biblically. You're not confronting me biblically. And, and we don't consider that, hey, you know, even, even if they are handling it unbiblically, isn't, isn't it the case that I should be more concerned about my own sin? 
but we're in the business of defending ourselves when we're in that mode, and so we don't think that way. We also tend to question the motives of the person confronting us. Or we'll accuse the confronter of questioning our motives. I mean, we'll do anything, anything to divert their attention and our attention away from our own sin. Now, sometimes if the Holy Spirit is really working ahead of time, we'll repent immediately and many, many times we'll repent after that initial defensiveness. So it's not that Paul is sending us on a fool's errand here. Not, not at all. But it is the case that sometimes there, there is some abuse waiting for the confronter on the front end. And, and that's why there are some people in the church who have been faithful to lovingly confront their brother or sister. And maybe they've done that several times. And eventually they decide, I'm never doing that again. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm done with the blowback. And, and, and they may begin to say things like, you know what, I, I'm not really even the Holy Spirit anyway. This is, it's not my place to do that. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit do the Holy Spirit's job. It's not my job. Well, the, the problem with that thinking is that the Holy Spirit who wrote this Bible says that it is our job to lovingly and wisely confront willful patterns of disobedience in the other believers around us whom we love. And it's their responsibility to do so for us. The Holy Spirit uses our words to do His work. And then when we've said what needs to be said, that's when we leave Him to do His work. That's when we step back and see what the Holy Spirit is going to do. Now here Paul acknowledges, yes, this hurts. This hurts, but it has to be done. Paul knows the pain of confrontation. You might also write down 2 Corinthians, just the whole book. Read the whole book. 2 Corinthians. Seriously. 2 Corinthians is just filled with Paul's pain over the blowback that he's experienced from loving that church well in 1 Corinthians and another letter. But does it prevent him from Loving others that way in the future? No. And why is that? Because Paul knows this is good work. And he wants to remind the Thessalonians of that. Here, this is good work. Don't grow weary of doing this good work. Now, why is this good work? I'm going to give you three reasons why it's good. Three reasons why this is good work. First of all, it's beneficial to the individual in sin. It's beneficial to the individual in sin. This is, it, it's a rescue operation. There are passages throughout the Bible. I'm going to give you three. Matthew 5, 23 through 25. Matthew 5, 23 through 25. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. And others that that indicate when a person it tolerates willful, unrepentant sin in their life, it negatively impacts their ability to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. Did you hear that? When a person tolerates willful, unrepentant sin in their life, it negatively impacts their ability to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. And, and we were created to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. That's what we're made for. So when we see somebody in that situation... Is it loving to see that and do nothing? No, it isn't loving. It is good, merciful, and kind to step in and to call that person to repentance so that 
they might enjoy fellowship with the Lord anew. The second reason this is good work is that it's beneficial to the church. It's beneficial to the church. It's an implication of that passage in 1 Corinthians 5 that for God to, to, to move a person to repentance or to remove the unrepentant from the church is to preserve the purity of the church. And that does good in at least a couple of ways. Just like the individual, it maintains the whole body's ability to enjoy the Lord to the fullest. Secondly, it maintains the church's testimony. It maintains the church's testimony. You know, we all, we all claim that Jesus transforms people. And when we treat sin seriously... By calling people to repentance, and if they don't repent, removing them from us, we say to the world, hey, we really believe it when we say that, that Jesus transforms sinners. Which brings us to a third related reason why this is good work. It's good because it benefits the cause of Christ. It's beneficial to the cause of Christ. We, we've already noted the gospel claims to change people. When we call, call people to walk in obedience, we seek to preserve the reputation of the gospel and of Jesus Himself. When we don't do that, what we're saying, when we see somebody in, 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 in unrepentant sin in the church, what we're saying to the world is, look, we don't care if you get the wrong idea of Jesus, which is that He's all talk. We don't care. We're, we're fine with you getting the wrong idea that, that Jesus says He saves and sanctifies. He says He redeems and transforms, but He really doesn't. Jesus is all talk and no walk. We ought not be okay with that. What should we want the world to think about Jesus? We should want them to think the truth. That is that He, he does what He says He does. Again, the truth is this, is this is not easy. And you may get hurt. And you may have the tables turned on you. You may have your motives questioned. Your words may be parsed to the nth degree. But is it worth it? You should ask Paul. Yes, it is we love the Lord Jesus and His body, we should endure all to see a member of, of the body repent for the good of all. Now that's, the, that's the first instruction that He gives to them, which is, look, don't grow weary in doing this good. Don't, don't lose your stomach for this good work. But He gives a second instruction in verse 14. Look at verse 14 again. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Now confronting is hard enough. This second, second instruction to the rest is harder. If that person doesn't now turn and obey, have Nothing to do with them. There's two things actually that you do with them. First of all, he says, take note of them, which is mark them out. And second, have nothing to do with them. What does that mean? Have nothing to do with them. It means have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. He said it another way, the beginning of the passage. Keep away from them. He, in 1 Corinthians 5, he uses the language of removal. Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. What he's talking about is excommunication. Remove them from the church. And yet Paul writes here in verse 15, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It should be obvious in the way that this whole thing is handled. This is not because we hate you. It's not because you're our enemy. It's because we love you. It's precisely why we're doing this. We love you. 1 Corinthians 5, 
shows that you know this it, it, it can it can feel harsh it can seem harsh but it's actually loving the the Paul, Paul writes in first Corinthians 5 you are to deliver this person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh and man that sounds that sounds really bad that sounds even worse than verse 14 here Verse 14, it just says, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. That sounds bad enough. It sounds worse than 1 Corinthians 5. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. All sounds really callous and cruel, doesn't it? But it's loving. Because what is, what is the end game? The end game, the, the hoped for, the prayed for result of putting this person, person out of the church is something that, that's not explicit in 2 Thessalonians, but something that is explicit in 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, what, what we want to see what we want to do is we, we, we want to let this unrepentant person or persons, we want to let them feel the weight of their choices. What, what they've essentially done in, in choosing unrepentant sin is that they have decided to chase sin instead of Jesus. They've turned in their heart back toward Egypt. And so what Paul wants and what the Lord Jesus has prescribed is is to let them taste that darkness once again with the hope that that same darkness will drive them back to the loving arms of Christ and the church. You know, it was that, that awareness of our sin, that shame of our sin that drove us to Jesus in the first place, wasn't it? And if they repent after being removed from the church, well, then we welcome them back and we celebrate. That's what we want. Ultimately, their removal, that's not what we want. We want what that removal will accomplish in them prayerfully. Many churches faithful to engage in this kind of good work, they, they have the joy of, of seeing that person or persons repent and come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen this over the years, brothers, in, in church that you pastored in the past. Pastor John is pastor to church where they engaged in loving church discipline and they had the joy of seeing that happen. Put somebody out of the church, repents and comes back. We've seen it here at Providence. Glorious thing. Other churches who have, have refused to do that loving thing, have refused to confront willful, unrepentant sin in, in their midst, they have then experienced the sorrow of seeing their congregations eaten alive by it, either over the course of years or overnight. That, that's true of the, the church that I grew up in. It was once a vibrant congregation of over 500 people, but they, they began to tolerate open, widespread sin in the church, and it ate them up until now. They're, they're just a handful of people. They can hardly pay the light bill, and there is zero Gospel influence coming out of that shell of a building. We've had people come to Providence over the years from churches who have been through that experience. And one of their first questions for us is, are you willing to engage in restorative church discipline? The reason they ask us that is because they have seen firsthand how devastating it is 
to allow sin to prosper unchecked in the church. It is too dangerous. They do not want to see that happen again. A few weeks ago, there was a story in China of a husband and wife who had some car trouble. They had to get out of their car and, and walk through this busy section of, of the city. An argument began between the two of them and the husband began to openly beat his wife. This is on a very, very busy public sidewalk. And people just saw it happening, walked by. No one did anything to, to stop the situation. Eventually, she's, she's on the ground and he picked up a stool, again beating her about the head. He, he beat his wife to death right there on the sidewalk. People watching walking by. There's pictures of this on the news outlets. Think about that. There are pictures of it. That means there are people taking pictures of it instead of doing anything. And we might wonder, what what was going through the mind of these bystanders? What what were they thinking? We we can only speculate. I I don't want to get involved. I, I don't want to get hurt. This guy was obviously angry. I want him to hurt me. Or I don't, I don't even know these people. This is none, none of my business. We don't know what they were thinking. At, at any rate, they could have done something and they didn't. May that never be the case in the body of Christ with a far greater danger. May that never be the case with us that, that we would see this most dangerous of threats unchecked, unrepentant sin in the church and simply watch it destroy people whom we have promised to love well. Let us look instead to Jesus. You know what Jesus did to address sin? What did Jesus do? He shed His own blood. Jesus Jesus thought sin so dangerous that He gave His life to protect His bride from it. And we should follow in His footsteps by addressing it even now. May He grant us the grace, the love, power, endurance to do so until He returns out of love for one another and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of the Gospel. We thank You for how clear it is that sin is dangerous. How clear it is that You loved us enough to save us from that sin. We pray, Father, that Your Gospel would be so clearly taught and believed and loved in Your church universal. That sin would be lovingly addressed in Your church throughout the world. Father, we pray for this church and we pray for our sister churches throughout Butler County and Hamilton County and other counties around us. We each, we each, Father, we have in our own hearts this tendency to protect ourselves. We don't want to do the hard thing because 
it's unpleasant for us. Father, would you help us to love one another better than that? Would you give your people in these other sister churches the inclination to love one another better than that? To be willing to say the hard things and do the hard things. To lovingly call one another to repentance. And in the absence of that repentance, to to put that person out of the church so that they might feel the weight of their sin and be drawn by your kindness back to repentance and faith and life in the church. Father, we pray also for our own hearts that, that you would grant us to be receptive to confrontation when it comes our way. We are all still being sanctified, Lord, and, and so we each will continue to struggle with sin until the Lord Jesus returns. We each will continue to need our brothers and sisters to love us well by bringing sin to our attention. And we pray, Father, that you would grant us to not make them miserable when they do that, not abuse them when they love us well by confronting us, not parse their words, not to turn the tables on them, but simply consider the content of that confrontation. Mine it for any possible truth. Turn and follow you. Lord, please preserve purity of your church and the reputation of your Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.